You're listening to the Felony Inc. podcast on the Startup Radio Network. In America, we live in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth. And the current cost of mass incarceration via the prison industrial complex is incalculable. So anything that can be done to help curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. That's what we attempt to do, one show at a time and one guest at a time. Each week, we interview felons and non-felons attempting to make the world a better place for those currently incarcerated, families, and communities affected by the big business of prison. Felony Inc. Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All right, welcome to another riveting edition of Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host, DJ Dick Hennessy. As always, joined by my beloved co-host, Meg Thibodeau, on this beautiful Portland afternoon. Oh, man, so sunny and so summery. Meg, how are you doing today? I am doing pretty great, Dick. It is definitely a gorgeous day outside. That really helps with the uh, optimism. Yeah, it takes a little of the edge <laughs> off, so to speak. Certainly does. We treasure our sunny days here in the Pacific Northwest. Indeed. Uh, I'm really uh, excited today. We have an amazing guest. We've been waiting for it for a little bit, and I'm looking forward to this interview. Of course, I'm talking about none other than Wendy Jason, the founder and managing director of the JusticeArtsCoalition.org. For those of you wondering what that is, the Justice Arts Coalition unites teaching artists, arts advocates, currently and formerly incarcerated artists and allies, harnessing the transformative power of the arts to reimagine justice. And the mission is to advance arts engagement and uh, enhance its efficiency within justice systems. Wendy, how are you doing today? I am so glad that you let that mouthful go so that I didn't have to. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm no doing problem. okay. I'm doing okay. I'm in um, Tacoma Park, Maryland, just outside of D.C., and it is a beautiful sunny day here as well. And for the first time in what feels like months, not oppressively humid. So, yeah. That helps with my levels of optimism as well. I could imagine. Um, I was wondering if we were the only ones with hot weather right now. So uh, it's been brutal here all summer. It's been like just terrible. That's so this typical. is a nice little break. It's typical, but you never. Yeah. I don't know. I don't get used to it. Yeah, yeah, that Atlantic. Yeah, that humidity is a killer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, but I'm I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Um, so typically how we do this podcast is uh, we get to kind of know you a little bit about um, just maybe your upbringing or your, uh, mm. how you got involved with the whole uh, Justice Arts Coalition. Um, I, I got your, uh, your resume here. You have an outlandish, oh outlandish <laughs> amount of experience and accolades. <laughs> I could go on and on, but uh, before I do all that, or maybe I should do it right now. I don't know. What do you think? You can do whatever you want. <laughs> okay, so real quick, Wendy, uh, she got a bachelor's degree in sociology, which I thought was cool because I have a bachelor's degree in sociology at U of O, oh, cool. so we have that in common. Yeah. But beyond that, you have 25 years of experience in social services, uh, which includes treatment, mental health centers, schools, shelters, prisons, and jails. And not only do you have all that, you have that within seven states, Connecticut, Massachusetts, <laughs> Florida, Alaska, New Mexico, Maryland, and D.C. You have a background in restorative practices, mental health, education, and you have passion for the arts. Obviously, I would expect nothing less for someone that was the founder of the Justice Arts Coalition. Um, mm-hmm. Man, uh, you wrote a really interesting thesis. Uh, I, I took a little bit of a look at it. The thesis is... As long as it comes from the heart, imagine coexistence and nonviolence in county jail and beyond. So that's like 30 things to talk about right there. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) how about we just get started nice and easy and talk about a little bit. uh, How you got there. Yeah. That's easy. Take us back to the the beginning of this, how this got started. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) The beginning. Do Do we start like... In utero? <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can. If something happened then, you know, we know about uh, I mean, I'm sure things happen to all of us then. Yeah. Um, and your generational stories are always welcome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I really do believe that that's kind of where it all, where it all began for me. I mean, obviously, literally, but figuratively as well. Um, oh, gosh. 
you know, whenever, whenever someone asks me like, well, how did, so how did you get involved in this work? It, I never quite know where to start the story. I guess I could rewind all the way to the beginning. Um, I, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, take the time. So, yeah, no, no, that's cool. So, so part of what you read in my little resume thing there was that I had 25 years of experience in social services. And I think um, I can kind of use that as a starting point. I, um, from a very, very young age, felt drawn to find and work in partnership solidarity with people who um, had good reason to feel invisible in the world and in my communities. Um, and I think for me, that came from a, my own experience of while, while I was raised in a, you know, fairly um, comfort, physically comfortable environment um, in a, in a, you know, well-off New York city suburb with everything I needed as far as the very, you know, bare bones, basic needs, shelter, food, good education, um, all those things. I grew up in a home where I very much felt like um, I didn't belong and I wasn't seen. So that kind of led me to um, wanting to make sure that other people who had shared that experience in some way did know that they mattered to someone. Um, and so along that, along that path, a lot of things have happened along that path. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of, I mean, as you can see, I've like kind of bounced all over the country trying to figure out what I'm doing and who I am and where I belong. But all along, it's been about um, doing whatever I can to kind of uplift and support and um, bring voice to folks who have been in some way marginalized. Um, and so, yeah, it, it wasn't until kind of later in life that I discovered that the arts could play a role in that. Um, I've always been very much an appreciator of the arts. I've always surrounded myself with music and visual art and um, dance and like all, all things arts related. Never really focused in on any one of those things in my own practice. Um, I've dabbled in a lot. But the arts have always been kind of something that I could turn to for a sense of who I am, um, for comfort and solace when need be. Um, and communities of artists, you know, were, pl were places where I could find a lot of um, inspiration. And I've always looked to artists as, looked at artists as very courageous um, in the ways that they share so vulnerably um, parts of them, pieces of them that I think many of us don't have the um, don't have the courage to share, myself included. So, um, so I, you know, from a young age, I I really looked to to musicians, to um, for a long time, like spoken word poets to just kind of inspire me to be more, um, more honest, more authentic. And I guess it was, God. In middle school, I started, um, I was sent to a school right after sixth grade that I didn't want to go to. My mother was very insistent that I not continue on in, in the public school system with all of my friends. Instead, she was going to send me to this snooty private school that I wanted nothing to do with. Um, and I got there incredibly, I think it was seventh, it was seventh grade that I started there, just incredibly angry, um, very just like disconnected from my family, from everyone wanting nothing, you know, nothing to do with the people who, who I was going to be in school with there. I had my opinion of them very well shaped. Um, and at some point during that first year, one a, a teacher found um, miserable me and invited me to come with her to serve a meal at a local soup kitchen. Um, and so I 
had no idea what that would entail, but it sounded like something I'd be interested in doing. Um, and so I went. And that was really the start for me of like this path in kind of social services work um, through middle school, through high school, um, while everything else in my life was completely in shambles and I was in like, you know, total self-destruct mode. The one thing that brought me a sense of who I was and a sense of meaning and purpose was, um, was, was service work. And so I involved myself in every way that I could in that, um, from, you know, volunteering at shelters and soup kitchens to work. I did some work at an, at a hospice for folks who had, um, HIV and, was doing some like food delivery, like mutual aid type stuff in, in New York City at night and everything I could do. Um, I think, you know, when I was doing, I think it was like probably the only time I was sober was when I was doing my volunteer work. Um, and so another thing that happened for me in high school was that I one day picked up the local newspaper and there was a letter to the editor in it. I have no idea how this got there, but from a young man who was incarcerated um, he was a year or two older than me, and I think I was a freshman at that point in high school. And he was looking for pen pals. He just ex he expressed that he was um, he had been um, incarcerated in, in an adult prison, was feeling very alone, just wanted you know one friends. And so, of course, like me being me, I um, wrote to him. And that was my first experience of being directly connected with someone inside. And we created a pretty strong friendship that lasted through high school. And I went off to college and we stayed in touch a bit and then kind of lost track of each other. Or I, it was probably my fault. Um, I lost track of myself and probably him. And, but that was like, I would say he planted a seed for me um, that down the road kind of sparked this interest in working with folks inside. And the other, the other big piece of that was seeing, I think I was, I must have been in college. It was like mid nineties, the movie Slam. Have, have, have you, have you seen the movie Slam? Saul Williams? Mm -mm. Okay. So is it, is it worth seeing? Oh yeah. No, you have. Okay. To, absolutely. So Slam was written, directed, produced by um, a spoken word poet named Saul Williams. Um, he also stars in it. And it is the story of a young young man um, who is picked up on a, like a petty weed charge, locked up, and ends up using his poetry as a way to kind of transcend this experience of confinement. Um, there's also a poetry class at his at the jail that he's in. And that class is taught by, I don't know if you're familiar with the actress, Sonia Sohn. Um, she was in The Wire. Um, and so he develops a relationship with this poetry teacher and, you know, whatever. The, the, his, his experience of poetry trans, just completely transforms his life. He gets out, walks into this amazing community of poets um, that, you know, support and enable him to create a new life for himself. And it's... A lovely story and it's um very I don't know it just it's stuck with me I think I've seen this movie 12 times now or something mm -hmm. like that it's stuck with me and so that was maybe I was in my early 20s and that kind of made this mark of one day that poetry teacher is going to be me even though I can't write a poem for shit like I have no <laughs> idea how to write a poem am I allowed to curse on this podcast yes oh yes okay. please do <laughs> um, okay good so I like I just knew like that, that's what I, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. Um, but continued anyway, like what, what I could do was get jobs in social service organizations that was accessible to me. Um, and so I did for many years all along feeling as though it wasn't quite the right fit. Um, I was kind of like in every job I had kind of the squeaky wheel um, you know, I think a lot of people who work in social service organizations and run social service organizations have very good intentions, or maybe they start with very good intentions, um, but all too often 
the, I don't know if it's just like the intrinsically hierarchical nature of these organizations or just mission creep or people just get kind of jaded. But inevitably, my experience has been that the way that people who come to these organizations seeking support get treated is really not all that, that much unlike how people are treated in prison and jail. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, I, I just had a really hard time keeping my mouth shut about that. Um, the way that I wanted to be in connection, in relationship with the people who I was, air quotes, serving, um, was never acceptable. I didn't see myself as, you know, as I, I, I didn't see my role as telling people how to live their lives. Um, I didn't believe that I knew better than they did how they should be living their lives. And that was problematic in most cases for my superiors. So, um, so yeah, it was always like, I, I was always like the square peg. I always felt like the square peg and like constantly getting myself into trouble. So at some point, this was um, in Alaska, I, when I was living in Alaska, I discovered restorative practices. I discovered restorative justice and also at that point, nonviolent communication um, and started kind of digging into that with curiosity about like, what it might look like to be able to support change in my communities in a way that was really like centered in relationship building um, and in like, like creating the space for people to share their stories um, and hear each other and find common ground and, and heal. Um, so I kind of just became fascinated by that, by the possibility of that. And that's what led me to grad school which is where I ended up focusing on kind of the intersections of restorative justice and the arts. And that's where it all started coming together. And then after that, when I left, I, and that's where I also was facilitating a creative writing group in a county jail. I got to do the Sonia Sohn thing and facilitate this creative writing group. I honestly had no idea what I was doing. Like I had never taught writing. I still to this day don't do any creative writing whatsoever. I just had this sense that the like that creative writing or any form of the arts could be a tool to foster community and to support um, people in sharing their stories in a more honest, open, trusting way. Um, and that's what happened. Like I just had the most amazing experience in this year that I spent at the jail with um you know, anywhere between a dozen and 20 men who were in on felony charges. Um, we created a, you know, we created a space together that was incredibly, incredibly unique. Like I have still have never had an experience like it. The amount of trust that they had for me was um, still like hard for me to wrap my head around. It took a minute. It took a minute. Cause at first they're like, who the fuck are you? And like, what do you, what do you want from us? Right. Understandably. Um, why are you here? And though within like, I think because I tend to just not, I, like I, I'm kind of a no bullshit person and I, and I tend to be pretty, um, I don't know, I wear my everything on my sleeve. Um, they were able to come to trust me pretty easily and each other in a way that none of them had experienced there before. So we just, the kinds of stories that were shared, the kind of support I saw those guys give each other um, the depth of the relationships that they made with each other in that space. Um, you know, like the writing was a lovely, um, outcome, like an output, but what really mattered was the relationships and that changed me a lot. Um, and so coming out of that, that's, I knew that that's what I needed to dedicate my life to. Um, but my resume said that I didn't, you know, that I did something else, <laughs> that I knew how to do something else. So it was really hard for me to find work in that field. There wasn't a lot of work in that field at that time. Um, and so I moved here to DC 
feel free to interrupt me at any time if you want me to shut up or you have another question for me. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm loving like, it. We have plenty of questions, but this is riveting. Yeah, Keep I'm going. Just, yeah, oh, I'm I'm sure. It's totally riveting. Um, <laughs> so I moved here to D.C. and I was, I could not for the life of me find a job in D.C. I just graduated from grad school. I had like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of loans. Um, couldn't find work was really wanting to do something related to the arts and prisons. And there just wasn't, there were like two organizations doing arts programming inside in the DC area. And both of them were, you know, tiny, tiny, functioning mostly on the efforts of volunteers. Um, they didn't have any paid positions. So I ended up, while I was job searching, writing um, little articles for change.org like this was back in the day when change.org didn't just do petitions they actually had like news stories and i was writing for their criminal justice site stories about arts programs in prisons stories about restorative justice programs um stories about like um i don't know like prison abolition movement stuff and in the process of doing so i got connected with a teaching artist named Judith Tannenbaum, who had recently published in collaboration with one of her poetry students in a prison in, in California, a memoir. They co-wrote a memoir about their experience as student and teacher in a prison. Um, beautiful, beautiful book called By Heart, Prison Poetry and Two Lives, Judith Tannenbaum and Spoon Jackson. Um, and Judith and a few of her teaching artist friends from other parts of the country had a couple of years prior launched a website called the Prison Arts Coalition. And I had actually used that website as I was doing my research for my, for my thesis for school. So I was familiar with it. Um, and it, at that point was really the only website online that was dedicated to providing resources, information, stories about art, the impact of the arts on the lives of people in prison. And she and um, her teaching artist friends had, had developed that website as a way to just bring more visibility to the work that they did, um, to the creative work of the folks in their classes, and also as a way for teaching artists who were involved in that work to share resources with each other, kind of to stay connected. Um, it was a very small field at that time, as I said, and everyone who worked within it felt really isolated. They didn't have a lot of opportunities to come together. There weren't like, you know, big national conferences at that point or anything like that. Um, there wasn't much attention paid to people who were teaching art programs in, in prisons, right? Um, most people didn't even know that that was a thing. So they <laughs> wanted to make sure everyone did know it was a thing and they created this website. Um, and she said, she let me know that, you know, they had developed this website. There was an email account associated with it. Um, it had gotten busy faster than they had could have anticipated. And they didn't really feel like they had the time to nurture and grow this online resource in the way that they wanted to. So she said, you know, I, she could tell that I really was invested in this work and um, she knew that I couldn't find a job. She said, well, we can't pay you, but if you'd like to volunteer for now to help us manage this website, that would be amazing. Um, and I jumped at that opportunity and that was 2011. Um, and I continued to manage the website um, pretty much on my own for the next, whatever, seven, eight years while I went back to work in social services, go figure, because that's what my resume says I know how to do. Um, and over those years, watched as like the general public's interest in what I was sharing on the, on the website um, and what folks were hearing about arts programs in prisons and artists in prison um, was like growing and growing and growing. Like the interest was just kind of snowballing um, and especially over the last like five years. So I guess it was 2015, 2016, there was a national conference in California um, for people involved in arts-based work around the system and there was a conversation that got started about, God, like, our field is growing really fast. Interest in it is growing really fast. 
Um, and yet, like, here we all are, we're, he we're here together right now, and it feels really good, but we still feel, s like, very, very disconnected from each other. Um, there's not enough work being done to create, you know, to, to, like, strengthen the sense of community across our field, to create opportunities for us to share our knowledge, share our resources with each other, um, and kind of build this, you know, build this field together. And that conversation kind of resulted in everyone agreeing that there needs to be some sort of national entity, national organization um, to bring us all together and support our work. So at that point, um, a steering committee was formed. It was like a national steering committee that was, com that was composed of like teaching artists, arts programs, administrators, um, and me being the manager of the Prison Arts Coalition website with the goal of launching a national organization. It took like five years um, of talking and planning and um, visioning, imagining what this thing could look like and should look like. And in the fall of 2018, um, we were still very much in the process of just talking about it a lot. Like we talk every month for four years, five years and talk and talk and talk <laughs> and not really do anything. Um, but I found out that fall that I was actually going to be laid off from the job that I was doing, that I had at the time. And I, it kind of occurred to me, well, like I've been spending, I don't know, 20, 30 hours a week on this website for the last couple of years well, more and more so, like, leading up to that time. It seems like if I'm, you know, it seems like this is, like, the stars aligning and telling me that it's time to launch this organization. Um, and so I, you know, I kind of proposed to the steering committee, like, hey, I, you know, we have this online resource that is, has become, like, the primary hub online for information about the work that we do in this field, um, I can't keep up with the emails, you know, I can't keep up with the number of requests from folks inside to share out their artwork um, and family members on the outside who are looking to support their loved ones inside who are making, who are involved in the arts. Like the demand for something more is there. So let's do this. Let's stop talking and yes. do the thing. And that's what happens. So winter of 2019, um, I started the process of trying to transition what was just like a website <laughs> into an, a national organization. Yeah, a that, real thing right there. Into a real thing. And it's, yeah, and, and that's what's happened. Like it's over the last year and a half, um, it's kind of just taken on a life of its own and I just am here trying to keep up with it. Um, but we, yeah, I mean, we're connected with teaching artists and arts organizations all over the country. We meet weekly on Zoom with, you know, all kinds of folks now, especially like things have changed a lot because of the pandemic, right? So we're doing a lot more to support folks who sh would normally be teaching inside and can't now. Um, and we have a network of like 300 incarcerated artists that we're in contact with. We have, you know, and many of their family members and loved ones on the outside that we're in contact with. Um, a lot of formerly incarcerated artists that we are in touch with and like a huge team of volunteers and interns and folks who are just really, really passionate and invested in this work and willing to devote their time to it to make sure that the organization kind of keeps chugging along. Um, so it's been, it's been a crazy, crazy ride and amazing experience. Um, and I find that like it's hard. It's like, it's, it's really hard. Like all this administrative stuff is not my, is not my bag, but it, like the universe keeps finding ways to remind me that this is, it's like the, it, what, what we're doing is absolutely necessary. Um, and if I keep doing it, like the people who need to be doing it with us just drop out of the sky and eventually the money will too. <laughs> That's my I heard somewhere that I, not long ago I heard, um, 
a quote, I don't remember exactly what it was, but the gist was that artists are the barometer and the interpreters of the zeitgeist, how we really look at artists to create our cultural mythology. And of course, advertising does that as well. So art becomes ever more important to create mythologies that can really inspire us and inform us in ways that are useful. So this work is just really compelling and, and, and um we're just, we're so glad you're doing it. I can't wait to hear more about what the Justice Arts Coalition is doing, but we're going to take a break for a quick ad and then we'll be right back. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. All right, and we're back. And if you're just joining us, our guest today is Wendy Jason, the founder and managing director of the Justice Arts Coalition. Uh, Wendy, uh, why don't you tell us what's going on with your organization right now? Yeah, we are doing so, so, so much um, with very little. So I'll start with like prior to prior to pandemic setting in. Um, we one of one of the things that feels most important to me to continue to do is find as many ways as possible to connect folks inside with folks outside. Um, so even prior to launching as um, this kind of nonprofit, and we're still actually not officially a nonprofit, but we're getting there. Um, we had an arts-based pen pal program, which we call the Partner Project, part with a B, big A-R-T. And that we've grown so significantly over the last year or so. So we have about 100 pairs of artists inside and artists outside who correspond Um they share their they share their creative work, and when I say artists, I don't mean just visual artists. We have songwriters, dancers, musicians, poets, all kinds of artists. Um, so that is one one piece of what we do. They 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 share their creative work. They give each other feedback. They sometimes work collaboratively on pieces that they send back and forth in the, through the mail. Um, so that's one way that we try to as much as possible, keep, you know, s generate new connections for folks inside. And in doing that, it's like, I, I really believe that we're also um, enabling more people outside to, to realize that they actually have a, a stake in what happens to people in prison um, and in, you know, in, in transforming the system. So, um, because all of a sudden they have a personal connection. And in most cases, these the folks on the outside who are participating in the partner project aren't folks who, who you know, had a loved one inside or knew, knew anyone um, who was directly impacted. So this is their, you know, and now all of a sudden they, they have a friend. <laughs> they have a friend who's, whose life has been, you know, impacted in so many ways by being incarcerated. So that's one way. Um, we have, we were hosting exhibitions, which was so much fun and I miss it so much. Um, we have had four, four or so exhibitions in the DC area um, where we show work by folks who are currently or form and or formerly incarcerated. Um, we started, our first exhibition was just over a year ago. And I think we showed work by eight artists. And then our most recent one was in February and we showed work by 25 it was like 150 pieces by 25 different artists that's amazing so that's, shows how much our our network has grown um we have as you might imagine we get a lot of mail um we <laughs> like we get so much mail um we have amazing volunteers who live in different parts of the country who help to respond to the mail it's because it's essential to me that everyone who writes to us, who sends us their creative work, receives a response and knows that there's some, like a real human being on the other end who has taken the time to read what they've written, to, to 
take a look at their artwork so they know that they're, you know, everything is landing safely with us and is going to be cared for in the way that it deserves to be. Um, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of um, entities out there that claim to be whatever selling prison art or, yeah, oh, well, you know, we'll make a we'll make a profile, your art prof- artist profile, and we're going to sell your work for you and you're going to get a cut. Um, artists will send their work out and never hear another word. So we are, you know, actively working to, to be something very, very different than that. Um, so every artist who writes to us from inside is sure to receive, you know, a, a sense of personal connection with one of our volunteers. It used to just be me. Like I used to handle all the mail myself. I'd sit down, I'd write letters. I love doing that. I miss doing that. I'd respond to any artwork that was sent to me. Um, and then it all, like, the influx happened so quickly that I started I started really worrying that I was, you know, people were having to wait too long to hear from me. I was losing track. Um, so that's when we started building out this team of volunteers who, yeah, every single piece of mail gets a, gets a personal response. And we get, I'd say, 30 to 40 pieces of mail every week. Um, so that's a lot. Um, we are... We also do letter writing events that we were doing here in the community at a local art space here in the DC area um, where I bring new artwork that we've received and and creative writing that we've received from folks inside, Um, invite volunteers to come spend the evening, um, take in the the artwork and choose a few pieces that really speak to them. And then they're invited to write letters to the artists, um, sharing their feedback, sharing their reflections on the work the artists then receive those letters. They know that this is like a one-off event. This isn't an, you know, this isn't necessarily an opportunity for ongoing correspondence, but when the artists receive these letters with this feedback, it absolutely is like, I think one of the most important things we do, the most valuable thing in their eyes that we do, because for them and for, I mean, for any artist, having the opportunity to get feedback on their work is so, so valuable. Um, And just for them, especially to know that, people are taking the time to engage with their work, to think about it, to reflect on it, to connect with it, and the time to write to them about it is just so incredibly validating. And and many times we hear like this, you know, it is because of this feedback that I keep wanting to create. Well, that's really a massive way for folks on the inside to feel connected to life on the outside, to know that their work is there, to know, you know, that their work is doing a kind of human engagement that they're at mm-hmm. currently unable to do. I mean, yeah. that's powerful to be able to get that kind of feedback. Artists on the inside typically get feedback from other inmates and that's right. fantastic. But to get that kind of feedback from an art show and to be part of something like mm-hmm. that, that's incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And every time we have an exhibition, we, um, we make sure that there's also a, a feedback loop happening there as well. We keep notebook for every artist um it's like a guest book where visitors to the exhibition are asked to write their reflections and feedback and then we at the end of the exit when the exhibition closes we copy all the pages of the notebook send it to the artists along with photos from the exhibition not just of their work hanging but of you know the work that's surrounding theirs everyone else's work people in the exhibition looking at their work um so that they you know i mean they can't be there and that's really really hard and we but we want them to feel as though their presence you know their presence there is felt because their their voice is there through their art um and people are responding to that yeah, even so that uh, go ahead Oh, sorry. I was going to say, even if they can't be there, like just the fact that you're doing that is so incredibly massive in terms of just inspiring them to continue on that path and yeah. and continue to improve and, and really take it to the next level. I mean, I, I really don't know what could be more powerful than that, but um, go you. ahead. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, so that's like one audience, like one aspect of our audience, right, is like what this is what we're doing with folks inside, um, you know. Along with that, we're also in regular connection with, as I said, a lot of people's loved ones and family members on the outside, so, like helping them to find ways of supporting their their loved ones' work, um, and just and just being in relationship with them, like just being you know another another form of support for them. Um, and so then, what's become even more, I think, like central to our work since the pandemic started, is around this kind of network coalition building on the outside um, among teaching artists, you know, arts uh, administrators of arts organizations, advocates, allies who are really, really invested in making sure that folks inside have opportunities to create and to express themselves in that way. Um, And 
as as you know, like as a result of the pandemic, all of the lockdowns, hundreds and hundreds of programs across the country who were sending teaching artists inside have been have been curtailed. Like so, no, there's no programming happening whatsoever. Right, no programming, no visiting. I mean, none of it. Right. That's worth reiterating for the listeners right. the importance right. of writing letters and connecting to anyone you know on the inside right now is yep. crucial to the mental health of these folks who yep. have been cut off completely from all the outside interaction. Completely. And so you, you, I mean, you take that increased isolation, you add to it the uncertainty and fear of the fact that this pandemic is like wreaking total havoc inside of prisons. Everyone, you know, people are just getting sick left and right. And they're worried, they're worrying about their families and loved ones on the outside. They don't know if they're safe. Um, So having not just the ability to, you know, to create themselves, um, which of course we all know is like, can be very soothing and healing and like, you know, and also just a distract, a, a healthy distraction. Right. But also having the opportunity to connect with other people from outside through that creative work. So having teaching artists coming in and leading classes, having your work go out to an exhibition and knowing that people are looking at it that way, like all of that has been kind of decimated by this, by this pandemic and by the lockdowns. So we have been bringing, we started out right when the lockdown started, you know, it kind of occurred to me like, wow, I wonder what all the teaching artists are doing right now and how they're doing. Um, so I just like one night, one day, one day was like, I'm just going to try, I, I'm going to try doing one of these zoom meeting thingies. I don't know. And like send out a mess. We have a Google group that has like a couple thousand people on it that are, have signed up at different conferences and whatnot. And I'm just going to send out a message and see who wants to show up for a meeting on zoom and just let us know how they're feeling and what's going on in their lives, like how this pandemic is affecting them. Um, and I did that and a whole bunch of like 40 people show up from across the country um, all, you know, teaching artists or administrators of arts programs. And they're all like, just so incredibly frustrated. So, you know, just so disheartened and so confused as to what to do next, because they're, you know, this is not only their, this is their livelihood. First of all, this is their organization's livelihood. It's also their heart work. Like they have relationships with all of these folks inside who they've been teaching for years. Um, and now they have no way of connecting with them. And in most cases, not all, but in most states, um, if you are a volunteer or a teacher inside of a prison, you are not allowed to be in contact with the people in your classes from the outside. You can only be in contact with them when you're in there. So you can't send a letter to someone who's in one of your classes to check in. You can't, you know, they can't, call, they can't call you on the phone. So, you know, here they are completely cut off from their students and scared, like scared shitless for what's gonna happen to them and to their programs. And um, so we bring them all together and it started, you know, as these weekly meetings that were like, just a way for them to connect with each other and support each other and share their frustration and stories. Um, but over time it's turned into like more, strategizing and problem solving around like, okay, so here are the obstacles. We know what the obstacles are. How can we work around them? Um, How can we work? In some cases, there's been some success in working with prison officials in creating, you know, correspondence programs in California because they have um, the whole arts and corrections program where the state supports, financially supports arts programs in prisons. There's more infrastructure there. So they've been been able to even do some video like teleconferencing arts programs. In most cases, there's still no programming happening, but a few, and we're seeing more and more, have figured out how to develop um, distance learning type stuff. And so we have now uh, four, I think, task forces that are working on um, kind of overcoming some of the obstacles that have been presented by the pandemic. Um, as far as like w- one is focused on dis- creating distance learning opportunities um, and they're hosting week, uh, calls every other week where teaching artists, <clears throat> excuse me, are invited to share out like the new curricula that they're developing for distance learning purposes, help each other create new, pro- n- new distance learning programs, figure out how to um, communicate with prison officials around like the importance of allowing us to do this kind of work. Um, 
And then we have other groups, one, one group that's very much focused on figuring out new ways of amplifying like the voices and stories of folks inside right now um, through social media, through new online platforms. Um, we have groups that are focused on finding fun funding opportunities because so many of these organizations, including ours, are like really, really hard up right now. Um, so we're, you know, working together to figure out where to find, find the funding to sustain, um, as well as some other, yeah, some other task forces that are, that are working on different areas of the work. So are this, this, like all of a sudden this strengthening of our kind of larger community has become really kind of a, a more integral part of what we're doing. Um, and a much bigger focus. And, and it's been amazing because now I hear when we get on these weekly Zoom calls, you know, I hear teaching artists in, um, you know, whatever, Missouri and California and Puerto Rico and even Canada now referring to Justice Arts Coalition as we, which is like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, because for quite some time it was like, you know, I, 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 you know, I was kind of trying to spearhead this thing and it was me and a few volunteers and picking up interns here and there along the way, you know, and now I think as of next week, we might have nine interns, we probably have 25 active volunteers and then we have um, all of these folks who gather on Zoom once a week and who are constantly emailing throughout the week who consider themselves part of Justice Arts Coalition. Um, that's been pretty amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, so just out of curiosity, uh, you referred to us, uh, a guest that we had on the show a couple of weeks back, Carol Alden. Carol. Uh, yeah. Uh, incredible, absolutely incredible guest. But one thing that kind of struck me is, uh, is weird. She was saying when you guys contacted her, she was paranoid about even yeah. becoming a part of it because there's so many other organizations out there trying to exploit and take advantage of people. Uh, they're creating artwork inside of, uh, you know, the, um, prison system. Mm -hmm. Um, is, is this a, a, that was my first time even hearing about things like that. Is, is, is this a common thing where there's other people masquerading as people trying to help out artists inside and, and just totally take advantage of them? Or is that Yeah, I know. Unfortunately, Carol's experience is not that rare. It, it is, it is, uh, it, it is pretty common. Um, and I, you know, it's frustrating because so many artists inside are looking to sell their work. Um, understandably, everyone wants everyone needs to sell their artwork you know they deserve to, to be able to earn money from from the labor that they put into that um and obviously it's going to be a lot harder for them to do that than for folks out here so but it's really tricky <laughs> it's hard you know it's 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 tricky there are some you know some some at some prisons they look poorly upon that um, folks can get in more trouble if they know, you know, if, if officials find out that they've been trying to sell their work. Um, we are able to sell some work when we have exhibitions. We do so usually through working with a family member or a loved one on the outside. It's just safer that way for everyone involved. Um, in, in the cases that someone inside doesn't have a person like that, then we'll put, a, you know, a buyer in direct contact with that, with the artist um, because we're not in the position to be able to be like a broker. But understandably, like a lot of artists are like, you know, the main thing they want to do is sell their stuff. So if someone writes to them and is like, hey, I have this amazing website, it's kind of like Etsy, but it's for so-called, you know, it's for quote unquote prison art. And I'm going to create a profile for you on my website and you're going to, you know, and you're going to get 30% or whatever of all of the proceeds from selling your art. And I'm going to put your art on t-shirts and mouse pads and iPhone covers and fucking whatever skateboard decks. And you're going to make lots of money. Well, yeah, it's an opportunity, right? Like opportunities knock and they're going to take it in most cases. Um, it's hard to vet from inside. You can't see what's happening online. Um, and so, yeah, like I often have folks inside reach out to me and be like, can you help me find a place to really like to sell? I just want to sell, sell, sell. And I'm like, God, I wish I could. And I, I have yet to find really any that feel, that feel okay to me. 
like that I'm that that don't concern me in some way, shape, or form. Um, so yeah, I mean, Carol had that experience multiple times, and a lot of other artists will say they've had that experience as well. Um, and I'm still very much like looking for those outlets online that have some integrity and really do what they say they're going to do and are giving the majority of proceeds back to the artists, you know, only taking a small cut for their time and labor and whatever. Um, and so, yeah, if anyone out in the world knows of one of those, I'd love to hear about it, but I haven't found it yet. Well, I mean, you guys definitely sound like the real deal, you know, which is why we're having you on the show. So I'm really happy that you guys thank exist. Thank you. you know, yeah, thank you. I mean, I wish... My dream is that down, you know, down the road, we can do more to really support artists to to get the income that they deserve and need for their work. Oh, absolutely, and we're one hundred percent with that as well. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, we're just starting to run out of time. Uh, hopefully, we get to have you on again as a guest. I mean, I think we have a lot more ground to cover, um, especially as time goes on. Um, just real quick, if people are listening, if they know someone that's currently uh, incarcerated or they mm-hmm. they have something. What is the mailing address uh, that they could send stuff to to submit to you guys? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we are Justice Arts Coalition, P.O. Box 8261, um, Silver Spring, S-I-L-V-E-R-S-P-R-I-N-G, Maryland, 20907. Okay. And uh, do you have anything coming up that you'd like to promote at all or uh, just... The website, justicearts.org? Yeah, definitely encourage people to check out the website. We have an event listing on our website. We have online workshops. We have meetings all the time. We have um, some special events coming up, some special workshops, and hopefully an online exhibition coming down the road here in the fall. And we have our art links, letter writing nights that are online now, um, all kinds of ways to get involved. So website, follow us on socials. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and tons of ways to volunteer as well. And we always need more volunteers. That's great. Wendy, we're so grateful as uh, two folks, Dick and I, that have been formerly incarcerated. It's always such, um, I just get so, so filled with gratitude to meet and hear about people that are doing really authentic and real work, not taking advantage of folks, using this opportunity to rehumanize people that are, like you said earlier, invisible and unheard. It's such powerful work to remember that folks inside are not less than human and that their work and their existence has value. So personally, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. It's incredibly meaningful. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity to talk too much about it. (laughs) Well, we're going to give you more if you want it. We'd love to have you back. And um, until then, uh, take good care and keep up with the good work. We're very, very delighted that we have this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you two so much for creating this platform for folks to share. Oh, we try. <laughs> Until All then, right. we'll see you guys uh, next week. Thank you so much to our guest today, Wendy Jason of the JusticeArtsCoalition.org. Check that website out, and uh, you will not be disappointed. Um, and don't forget, join us every Friday morning, 10 a.m. Pacific time at StartupRadioNetwork.com. And we'll see you next time. Peace. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.